If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. A large passenger plane, you may have seen the video of this, it is unbelievable and it's amazing uh, that more uh, did not perish in this accident. A large passenger plane and a Japanese Coast Guard aircraft collided on a runway at a Tokyo airport today, bursting into flames, killing five people aboard the Coast Guard plane, but all 379 passengers aboard the the Japan Airlines flight got out safely before the Airbus A350 was fully engulfed in flames. The pilot of the Coast Guard's Bombardier-8 plane escaped, but the five crew members died. The aircraft was preparing to take off to deliver aid to an area affected by the major earthquake, which happened in uh, Japan on Monday. So just a a bizarre set of circumstances. And to try to explain it all, uh, Keith uh, Keith Mackey is with us, Mackey International, and with us now. Keith, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I hope you are also, and have a happy new year. And Happy New Year to you, Keith. So great for you to taking the taking the time to join us, and we greatly appreciate it over the years uh, how you've uh, shared your experience with us. When you first saw this, Keith, what was your take? What was your feeling? Well, it's an unfortunate situation, and there's going to be a lot of investigating involved. And it'll primarily focus on the tapes from the airplane and the tower. Uh, to see uh, how we got two pieces of equipment at the same place at the same time. Apparently, the uh, Coast Guard airplane was either taking position on the runway or taking off when the uh, the Japan Airlines 350 hit it. So we're going to have to find out how that happened, who had clearance to be there and who was there without clearance. Uh, the excellent sequence was actually amazing. The airplane, the JAL airplane, caught fire going down the runway. And yet, even though the nose gear apparently had collapsed, they were able to get everyone out of the airplane with either minimal or no injuries. So the flight crew did an outstanding job. The uh, uh, rest of it is just an unfortunate situation. And until we are able to learn which aircraft was cleared to be where, we won't know the answers. The uh, investigators will probably be able to determine this rather quickly. But generally, in these situations, it takes a year, year and a half, or even two years for the final reports to become out. We have certainly heard... We've certainly heard, Keith, that uh, many experts such as yourself have, have commended the flight crew for whatever they did to get those people out as quickly as they did. And we understand that some of or uh, at least one of the or the front uh, exits of the plane was actually blocked. So they had to go out the tail. Is that accurate? I don't know. Uh, I could see the front left door appeared to be open in the video that I saw. Now, whether uh, it was operational or not, I don't know. It would be uh, very difficult to get everyone out a single exit. Generally, when there's a fire or something on the ground, the side of the aircraft that is engulfed in flame is blocked off, and flight attendants are trained to only use the exits away from the fire. So it may have been that there was some flame by that door, and even though it was later opened, it was not a usable exit. We we hear that uh, crews are trained to basically vacate a plane in a very very short period of time. Like I'm hearing in within ninety seconds or so. Um, when something like this happens, what what happens? What triggers? What sets off this series of events? Well. Flight crews are trained to do this. In fact, uh, when they get a new piece of equipment, they have to demonstrate that they can evacuate the aircraft in the minimum allowable time. And when they do this, they generally have airplane and aircraft line employees on the airplane. They're given an alarm and they uh, deploy the slides and the entire uh, set of people that are on the airplane have to evacuate using these slides. Now, in actual practice, what can really destroy this time is if people try to take carry-on luggage with them or pull things out of the overhead. That's a deadly situation when that happened, and that can prevent them from uh, being able to evacuate safely. 
Apparently, that did not happen today, or we probably would have had some fatalities. Wow. Um, what about and how much do we know about the contact of these two airplanes? Obviously, uh, the passenger jet coming in, uh, the Coast Guard plane getting ready to taxi out. Are we assuming? Do we know? Is this like a, a nose to tail uh, sort of sideswiping swiping the one plane as it went by? Well, looking at the uh, the video, the uh, the JAL airplane seems to have been on fire through most of its travel down the runway. So the collision mm. probably occurred fairly early in the landing sequence and uh, must have ruptured a fuel tank because we've got fuel spilling out, which caused the fireball that followed the airplane down the runway. And then, of course, we have the tremendous fire throughout the cabin, and it's not clear how that happened or why they weren't able to get more uh, fire equipment out there to put the fire out, but it burned for quite a while, obviously, uh, after it, they got the passengers out. Are there, concerned about, are there concerns about uh, emergency crews on the ground and exactly the point that you're making on how quick it took to do this? Well, uh, I'm sure this will all be reviewed uh, very thoroughly. Uh, it's unclear to me why uh, the aircraft were not in visual contact. Uh, I would have to assume that the Coast Guard airplane must have had his tail pointed toward the uh, landing aircraft and been unable to see him. And it's unclear mm -hmm. as to why the, uh, the 350 did not see the other aircraft. So uh, until these facts come out, right now we're just speculating because we don't know exactly what the situation was. We'll have a pretty good idea soon, I think, but all the details will take quite a time to be uh, fashioned into an official report. Keep Mackie with us, Mackie International, and a plane crash uh, in an airport near Tokyo where a uh, 767 passengers got out before a plane erupted uh, in flames and unfortunately five dead in that Coast Guard aircraft. Uh, Keith, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're very welcome, Scott. Take care. All right. Uh, getting ready to bring in Rick Zamper and host of Good Morning Hamilton, Senior Sports Director with 900 CHML. And, you know, the whole idea behind uh, having Rick on during this segment was to talk about the Professional Women's Hockey League, which, of course, uh, had its... Uh, had its opening game on New Year's Day, and and I'm sure lots of people sat around to watch. History in the making, you know, as a family, and and, and to see all of this happen, uh, and then unfortunately, uh, now we find out, you know, although we started off with this, uh, you know, this very historic moment, now we find out that Team Canada is out of the World Junior. So lots to talk to Rick Zamford about, host of Good Morning Hamilton, sports director with 900 CHML, and here now, Happy New Year, Rick. So glad you could make it on with us. Scott, Happy New Year. How are you? So far, so good. So uh, obviously, we're going to talk about the Professional Women's Hockey League, but I got to ask you, Team Canada, what happened? What are your thoughts here? Didn't look strong, obviously, in Game 1, and many were questioning how good this team uh, could be, but are, are you surprised where we are today? Well, I think any time that Canada doesn't at least make it to the semifinals of a major international hockey tournament, there is you know, cause for consternation because we are, this is our national sport and we have the greatest group of talent, you know, top to bottom, usually the deepest team, usually the most talented. Uh, this year didn't really hit any of those kind of notes, certainly in terms of depth. Yeah, there's there's a lot of talent on this team, but elite level depth, uh, you know, uh, uh, apart from a couple of guys, this team was probably below and is obviously with the result today, below teams like the U.S. and Sweden for sure. Um, it's better luck next time, but it, it still stings because, you know, we go into these tournaments expecting gold and nothing short of that is ever going to be acceptable to the hardcore hockey fan. But sometimes you got to take your medicine and it. And obviously this year, this team has taken its medicine. Uh, you said not as many uh, elite players per se. Why not? Uh, is it a scouting issue? Is it just one of those years uh, coaching? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's kind of all of the above. I mean, you, you go down to, you know, the, uh, the the talent level and the junior level, and we see it, and we've seen it for years with the Hamilton Bulldogs, now Brantford Bulldogs. There are players that can play for 
many national teams, whether it's the U.S. or Sweden or Finland or, you know, the list goes on and on. And sometimes this is just cyclical. You'll get a, a year in which, you know, top to bottom Team Canada this year in comparison to other years isn't as good. And I, I'm very confident in saying this year's team, apart from Macklin Celebrini, who was, you know, the guy who was really carrying the load. And here's a 17-year-old who's probably the best guy on this team. And and by far, you know, apart from that, there was, you know, guys who just didn't perform. You know, you look at Fraser Minton, the, 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 the captain of Team Canada, a guy who played in the NHL with the Maple Leafs, didn't have the greatest of tournaments. You know, both their guys in goal really didn't shine tremendously well, apart from, you know, Russo played a pretty good game against Sweden, but, you know, apart from that, they didn't dominate. And in, in any of their games, they didn't really dominate, save for, you know, the blow they mm. had earlier on in the in the tournament. But, yeah, underperformed, underwhelming, um, didn't really, you know, uh, live up to the, the brand that Team Canada has stood for for many, for many decades. All right, last question on this. Who, who do you see in the finals then? Well, you know what? I predicted before the tournament that the United States would win. Um, I'll, I'll stay with that because I'm not one to change. But, boy, Team Sweden looks really good as well. Uh, I, I see these two teams in the final. They're kind of destined to meet in the final. They both finished in top spot in their respective Group A and in Group B. Uh, two teams that have a wealth of talent in all positions. Sweden with the home ice advantage. going to be very interesting to see if the U.S. can knock them off that perch. But it should be a good semifinal and then final match. All right, uh, Professional Women's Hockey League. Boy, we've been talking about this for an awfully long time. Opens up on New Year's Day. New York and Toronto. Uh, New York wins uh, for nothing. How significant is that day? How significant is the start of this league? Well, I think this is big. This is, uh, and especially for women's hockey and the development of the next generations of women's hockey, it's massive. Right to get this league started in as little as six months. Really, they had you know they had this idea when the other leagues were kind of folding and, and being bought out that uh, listen, we got to get something started here. And it, it literally took them six months to say, all right, we're doing this. Uh, they got you know huge uh, um, monetary backing from um, uh, the LA Dodgers. Uh, you know, massive corporate sponsorships from places like uh, Tim Hortons and uh, M Canadian Tire. Obviously, having the media backing of this with all three major networks broadcasting the game yesterday, and we'll be mm. doing so from here on in. Like that's huge. That's and 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 that all happened in six months, which is amazing. But for the next generations, plural, this is huge because now you have each and every you know major market in in Canada and the U.S. with a team. And you're going to have fans that, you know, connect with those teams. You're going to have young women, young girls uh, drawn to those teams, drawn to the stories of the athletes that play in these markets. Whereas before we had, you know, kind of pro hockey leagues, but they didn't really have the marketing back background. They didn't really have the, the oomph of these networks. The, the exposure was really lacking. And I think this one is the start of something really cool. And, you know, fingers crossed that they got it right. They're going to get it right from here on in. And there's not going to be many major hiccups with any new league. Even in the National Hockey League 100 plus years ago, it was tough at the get-go. So there's going to be some stumbles. There's going to be some challenges. But I thought a pretty good first start yesterday in Toronto, despite the result for the Toronto hockey fans. But uh, uh, the talent was there. Uh, you know, it was a, uh, a competitive game. I'm really excited to see where this league goes. I've uh, only got a few seconds left here, Rick. So uh, obviously, if you're one of these players, I mean, you've come up through the system and, and, and your dream was to play professional hockey. Uh, what moment is greater to play in one of those games uh, on, or to play in that game on New Year's Day and be the very first, the very first to score a goal in this league? Or is it to play for your country, whether it being the USA or Canada, considering this has been the goal all along was to get to this point? Yeah, I think playing for your country is very special at any level. Uh, I, I think, you know, setting up a new league where many women from here on in are going to get paid to play, uh, because that's very different than what happens on the international stage. Um, when you're mm -hmm. earning, you know, the league average, I think, is $37,000, no, $55,000, somewhere in that, that ballpark. T to get paid to play, that's huge. And to make a career out of it and not necessarily have a second job, 
uh, that's massive, and you can work on your skill set. So hats off to the PWHL and everyone involved. Um, it's exciting. It's an exciting time for, for women's hockey. Rick Zamper with us, host of Good Morning Hamilton, sports director with 900 CHML, talking about the Professional Women's Hockey League and, of course, uh, early exit for Team Canada. Rick, thanks for the time. Be well. You got it. Take care. With a brand new year comes changes, uh, and often that means extra costs to you. Uh, what is going to happen at Queen's Park, at the legislature, over the course of the next year? What can we expect now that we are into 2024? Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, and here now. Colin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, good morning. Uh, good afternoon, rather. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you too, Colin. Um, uh, obviously, changes going into any new year. What stands out for you? Uh, I understand one of the issues, the uh, the tax cut that was uh, uh, brought in by the Ford government has been extended until June 30th. What stands out for you as you look into the year ahead? Yeah, I mean, the gas tax is one of those things that the Ford government will want to kind of keep in place for as long as possible, right? They shaved off about 5.3 cents per liter off of the cost of the provincial portion of the gasoline tax. Um, and, and, you know, that means that we're only paying about 9 cents per liter on the provincial portion of the tax. Now, that's been extended until about June 30th of this year. The question is, how long will the government be able to extend that, right? Because every time you cut taxes, uh, yeah. you have to make up that, that revenue shortfall that those taxes represented. And so the government has been forking out hundreds of millions of dollars every single uh, you know, six months or so in order to keep extending this tax cut. Is it going to be viable in the future? We don't know. In Alberta, as an example, they had a, you know, a tax uh, break on the provincial portion of, of the gasoline tax. And they had to reinstate it at the beginning of this year, saying that, you know, they, they frankly needed some of the money and, and it wasn't kind of making sense with where uh, the price of oil was, was at. So we don't know how far that's, that's going to go. But in terms of the rest of the year, I mean, look, this government is looking to turn the page on what was just an absolute train wreck of a 2023, hmm. right? I mean, they had the Greenbelt scandal that really dominated uh, the, the conversation throughout much of the year. They had cabinet ministers resigned, two of them. They had, uh, you know, numbers of chiefs of staff resign as well. And they, they, you know, took a beating when it came to public opinion polls. And the government is now kind of left with this albatross around their neck in terms of, you know, is the government in bed with developers? So they're going to look to start 2024, kind of changing the chapter and all of that. They're hoping all of the reversals are behind them. And now, you know, it's it's a bit of cruise control of, uh, until the next election, really. What do you think is going to be the major challenge for this government heading into this year? Well, I think the challenge for this government is a challenge that most governments are facing. That's housing, 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 right? I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, this government set a goal of building 1.5 million homes by 2031. They are nowhere near achieving that goal. I mean, they would have to build about 150,000 homes every single year. And currently in Ontario, we haven't built more than 100,000 homes since they set that target. So they, mm. they haven't really um, achieved success to the degree that they're hoping for. So this will be a very housing-focused government going forward because to them, it's a, it's a winning issue, right? I mean, ultimately, people need um, you know, more affordable homes to live in, and a lot yeah. of people have been priced out of the market, and they've determined that the only way to make homes cheaper is to you know, flood the market with more homes. So that will be their kind of guiding light, and we'll see what changes they make over the course of 2024 uh, to achieve those targets. Uh, challenges for the opposition with the NDP and Marit Stiles and the Liberals with the new leader in Bonnie Crombie. Yeah, so I mean, Marit Stiles also had a terrible year, right? 2023 was the year that she was crowned the NDP leader and then had to, you know, boot out uh, a member of her caucus, Sarah Gemma, over mm. the whole uh, Israel-Hamas conflict. And so that was really a challenge for her, a leadership test. And uh, she also has another kind of challenge coming up from uh, the center with Bonnie Crombie now taking over as the uh, leader of the Ontario Liberals. I, I think this is going to, you know, create a bit of a shift when it came comes to where progressive voters will put their support to. Um, 
a lot of them are looking for an alternative to Doug Ford's progressive conservatives. He still has somewhat of a majority in terms of the polls and in terms of a plurality. He's sitting at about 38 to 40 percent support. And that would be enough to form another majority government. But now we are going to see how the um, the political uh, soil is going to start to shift beneath the ground of the premier because you've got Bonnie Crombie, who is a charismatic, enigmatic kind of person, prone to mm-hmm. her own controversies, by the way, uh, who could really start to take support away from both the NDP and the progressive conservatives, as liberals traditionally do. So she will be the game changer, I think, in 2024. Next steps for Bonnie Crombie moving forward. Yeah, so Bonnie Crombie has just a few more days left as the mayor of Mississauga. By the middle of the month, she's going to be stepping down as the mayor of Mississauga. And then, of course, she'll be transitioning into this new role as the leader of uh, the Ontario Liberals. Now, remember, this is a party that has been dealt severe blows in two successive elections, right? They only have, uh, what, about uh, 10 seats or eight, nine seats in the legislature right now. Uh, They have had some electoral success in by-elections, but it's still a far cry from where they want to be. The question for Bonnie Crombie is, what kind of a party is she inheriting? How strong is this party? Remember, to run a, a successful election campaign, you need money and you need ground support. So she needs to build up the volunteer support network across the entire province in 124 ridings. And, and in order to do that, she's got to start creating policy, starting to you know attract young liberals, uh, liberals who turned away from the party in previous elections, and start to court progressive conservatives who might be at the center and looking to maybe jump ship as well. So she's got an enormous task ahead of her. But in the interim, she'll also be shaping the party in her own vision, right? And her it, it, kind of making the party up around her We've seen Justin Trudeau do that. We've seen Stephen Del Duca do that. We've seen Doug Ford do that. Now it's Bonnie Crombie's turn to kind of really take this party and and put her own brand on it. So I think that's what you'll see in the first few days. Uh, And then, you know, a prolonged fight with Doug Ford. I think that'll be the the, the most fireworks, um, her relationship with Doug Ford and and the falling out of this relationship and and how these two are going to keep butting heads. I think that, I mean, from a a political observer perspective, that's going to be the most fascinating dynamic between those two. Mm. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. The look ahead in 2024 from Queen's Park. Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Stephen LeDrew is with us, past president of the Liberal Party of Canada, lawyer, media pundit. Check out the YouTube channel, the LeDrew three-minute interview, and his latest in the Toronto Sun. Trudeau wants us to allow him to radically change Canada. His policy is rooted in increasingly discredited and dated dogma would turn Canadians into a flock of sheep. Joining us now, Stephen LeDrew. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott. I am doing well. And when I heard your intro, uh, the fruits are made for walking, I think you're going to come on and announce that Mr. Trudeau said he's going to be walking. Not unless you've got some sort of information we don't. Is it snowing where you are? Because, I mean, we've been waiting on the edge of our seat for that for years. Now, look, you're a past president of the Liberal Party of Canada. Uh, what is your What is your take on the prime minister? And from my position as sort of a centrist, I've voted for all three political parties in my lifetime. He's taken the once great left of center Liberal Party and just veered it to the extreme left. What's your take on the direction and his ability to manage? Well, I'll just try to capture, capture that by saying the Liberal Party that he has is no longer the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party, before I said in that article, used to be one of free enterprise and, um, and freedom and liberty and uh, social conscience. And Trudeau has, as you know, and as your listeners know, he got rid of all the old people in the Liberal Party, all the senators, all the smart people, all the people that had a conscience in the Liberal Party. He said, I'm all right, Jack, I'm fine, I'm going ahead. And he turned it into a coalition party with the NDP. And so I think, uh, Scott, that now I would characterize Trudeau as a autocratic, social, progressive. And, uh, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And he wants to, um, he really wants to change Canada. And he has done a lot to do that. He has raised taxes so much that people, and I live in a very small hamlet, I know people who are having real difficulty uh, just putting food on the table. Oh, that is, don't worry about it. Keep paying your high taxes, and I will give you a check. Uh, never before in Canada we had a government which hurts people so often 
and so deeply, and then says, but it's okay, we're going to take care of you. We're going to feed you. We're going to give you checks. We're going to tell you all kinds of good stuff. Keep voting for us, and you'll get more of the same, which I think is a huge mistake. And it is changing Canada. Between the economy and immigration and his, quote, diversity, we're changing the character of Canada, or he is. Uh, it seems they allow problems to happen and then come with money or programs to fix it. It's the great redistribution of wealth. It, it's socialism, it, it, plain and simply. Do Canadians understand this? Is this the direction they want to go in? Well, I think they didn't. I think it was uh, they've been taken by stealth. I think that uh, because of his eight years in power, Trudeau has... Has, and he has unlimited power. Let's just face it. It's no longer a situation where you have strong cabinet ministers, and strong MPs who will temper, and actually a strong party, uh, which will temper uh, the prime minister and ask the prime minister to think twice about certain things. There's no one to oppose the prime minister. So he does what he wants. And I think that he has uh, taken that lead. And he's not a, you know, he's not a, a rocket scientist. He just says, I'm following um, my progressive friends around the world. And uh, progressive does not mean any longer, in my view, uh, you know, some sort of social liberal party. It means you know, dumbing down into the very, very socialist left. And, uh, and Canada is a poor for it. Look at our economy. Look at our, um, look at our streets. When you're talking about, he says, well, diversity is so great. Yes. You know, a certain degree of multiculturalism is terrific, but when you have people fighting the wars and the tribal wars mm. in their countries on the streets of Hamilton, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Vancouver, when you have them fighting fist fights, when you have them threatening cops and cops not being able to do anything about it, there's something radically wrong in Canada, the way we are going, Scott. Uh, you talk. You said he's not a rocket scientist. I've had political scientists on the show from various universities call him everything, and I, and I don't want to take this personal. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, nope. But everything from vacuous to a lightweight, over and above the policy, does he have the capacity to manage this? Is he capable, other than having a vision uh, which which he feels is true? And where eventually is where I'm going with this is is going to ask you what's the difference between him and his father. Well, his, his father was, um, there's no question, he was a, a very, very smart man. Uh, I'd had a few chats with him. I did not know him well, but he was, uh, he was a smart man. He was intellectually rigorous. And whether you agree with him or not, and I didn't agree with all of his policies or the government's policies, and no one should agree with all the government's policies. That's when we agree with all the government's policies. We're a bunch of patsies. Mm. Uh, government should always be open to, uh, to criticism and to discussion and debate. That's how we get good things. But Trudeau uh, Sr. Uh, understood that. Trudeau Jr., if you question anything, you're out the window. You know, it was like Putin throwing out the window of a top building. Um, he, I remember Bill Graham, the late Bill Graham, who was a successful cabinet minister, interim leader of the party, uh, told me years ago that uh, not only is the Trudeau government asking people for their advice and asking, you know, about certain directions. He said one time on an issue that he phoned the prime minister and said, you know, there are certain things you should be aware of. The prime minister's office said, no, we're all right, Jack. We're fine. We're good. We don't mm -hmm. need uh, the advice of someone who is a, a world figure who has been through the wars before. Uh, Trudeau's office reflects Trudeau and uh, Trudeau thinks that he has all the answers. Now he may be realizing that he doesn't. So the essence of your question, Scott, do I think that he can uh, turn this around? Um, anything is possible. I think Trudeau could win re-election. Uh, there's two years and uh, anything is possible. Does he have the capacity to turn around the government's policies? I don't think so, because he doesn't know what those policies should be. He is just going, you know, with just six his finger up, which way the wind is going and uh, follows it. Uh, only got a few seconds left, Stephen. Where does yeah. that leave the Liberal Party? Well, the Liberal Party, as I said at the outset of your show, uh, Scott, I love listening to your show. The Liberal Party is not the Liberal Party that was for a hundred years. Um, you know, with uh, a, well, it had it had 
good policies in my view. Not all of them were great, but good policies, and it allowed people to to work hard and be educated and create a country. Uh, the Liberal Party right now, and I know people, liberals from coast to coast to coast, who say who have been involved in the party. I spoke to one woman in Sault Ste. Marie. She's 76 years old. She's been working the Liberal Party for probably 70 years, Scott. She said the party's finished. Um, it's just not the one it used to be. So mm. I think that it's a Trudeau party. I think that it's an extraordinarily weak party. Uh, anything can recover. But uh, for the moment, uh, the Liberal Party is, uh, is toast, it's finished. It's the Trudeau party. And whether people want to uh, reelect Justin Trudeau, the Justin Trudeau party, well, I hope that they would give it uh, a second look. Stephen LeDrew with us, his latest in the Toronto Sun. Trudeau wants us to allow him to radically change Canada. Stephen, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Happy New Year. And to you, always great, Scott. Thanks very much. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We uh, remember at uh, the end of the year, before we all went away for holidays um the, the political leaders were out doing the rounds um both jugmeet singh and pierre polyev were on this show uh, the prime minister always declines which i understand um and, and basically talking about the year ahead what jugmeet singh did not talk about but did uh sort of as he was dropping a bomb at the end of the year was that the ndp would not support the liberals any longer past the next election. So if they're in a minority or in a minority situation next election, they will not do what they've done in teaming up with the uh, liberals. Why say that now? What has changed? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. And with us now, Tim, thank you for the time. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, Scott. We got to do some uh, an autopsy on the, the way Canada used the Great Big Sea song. I'm not blaming the song for the loss, but my goodness, a shockingly sad loss today at the World Juniors. Surprising too. Like I forgot the game was even on, and then I get an alert saying that they lost. It's like what even happened there? I can't believe it. But you know, uh, the great news is the Professional Women's Hockey League kicked off yep. the day before, and there's a positive thing to think about in all of this. But yeah, I, I don't and think. We have a sellout on that here in Ottawa tonight, actually, for the yeah. first game here in Ottawa. So, so it's great. So, but you want to talk politics? So let's talk about. <laughs> so why drop this bomb at the very end of the year? Uh, he didn't say anything about this on our show. He didn't really make it that much of a news story. Uh, why the announcement that if there is a, a, a minority after the next election, he will not form the club with the Liberals again? Well, he's not saying that, um, so that's interesting, right? He's saying he won't form a coalition government. They don't have a coalition government right now. They have a supply and confidence agreement. So he's being a little cute um, when you have a coalition. Government, no, that's what, not being that's not being cute, Tim. That's being misleading to the general public. Well, that's why. Well, that's my Newfoundland way of being misleading. That's why <laughs> he's trying to be cute with it all, um, because what they have now, uh, he's not saying he wouldn't have that again. What he's saying is he wouldn't do what he's not done already, which is join a liberal government, because that's what a coalition government is, when the NDP and the liberals, would have, both parties would have people uh, from cabinet, uh, people in the cabinet, excuse me. Right. So to get to the, finally the answer of your question, I think there's two reasons for this. One, he knows there's going to be a pretty significant attack coming his way as there was towards the end of 2023 from conservatives and others saying, okay, you're not um, doing much here to uh, for, for the people who voted for you. You're keeping your deal alive and that's keeping the liberals alive. Why are you doing that? So he's, you know, maybe hoping by saying this, which as you say is a bit misleading, will address that concern. He's also trying to address concerns in his own party and those concerns in his own party, Scott, are that he, and the NDP are becoming consumed by the liberals. They're not becoming relevant. Man. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that statement is going to make anybody feel better or do anything to push back the charges that are going to come as long as there's a supply and confidence agreement. 
is he saying this because more and more people are questioning exactly what you just said? I mean, I, I asked him on this show uh, two interviews ago, do you not want to be prime minister? And, and no, I want to be prime minister, he said. Uh, and, and now I, it, he's starting to wear a lot of the failure of the liberal uh, government. Is it too late? Is he already wearing this? And now he's trying to change direction of some sort. He may be starting to try and change direction. Uh, he he will try and make an argument, as he has, that, you know, it's the NDP who got you dental care. It'll be the NDP who gets you pharmacare. wasn't really the Liberals. But whether the, you know, the average voter buys that and they look at how things came about, they, we shall see. He's also recognizing that, you know, again, if you're the average voter and you don't like the Conservatives, um, and you want to go somewhere else, um, but you're fed up with the liberals. He hasn't really given you a reason to go anywhere else at the moment. So he's got a, you know, the, the, the secret to political success for him. And that may be just getting above what he got now or getting what he got now is to break up the right way. I don't know if this is a sign of breaking up, uh, but it's certainly, uh, an attempt by him to demarcate, but what is he demarcating from something he's already not done? Uh, have the libs, uh, have the liberals burned out their vision of a more extreme left leaning, left leaning liberal party? Has that, have they gone too far to the left now that's starting to backfire? I'm thinking of the election, uh, now this is provincially of Bonnie Crombie, a much more centrist liberal, uh, in Ontario. Is, is this whole direction gonna change? Cause they've been burning this, th- this path for a while, pretty much jumping in and eating the NDP's lunch whenever it looked like they were gaining any ground. Is that burning is that burning out is that is that starting to uh to sour i think a little bit i mean if you look at the polls you can make that argument because trudeau really hasn't backed down from his more left left uh, wing leaning liberal party and he in most polls was 15 to 18 points behind so you know, the, something's not right. It isn't just frustration with Trudeau, although that is a significant element of it. But Trudeau is what he represents, and that's a lot of what he's represented. Can a leopard change his spots? Is true? Is Trudeau's um, Hail Mary pass, if you will, going to be the election of Donald Trump? But he can point back and say, look, I've dealt with the guy before, and we survived. We even got a free trade deal out of it. I don't know, but... Uh, some things have to change if the Liberals are going to improve their political fortune. I've had a couple of Liberal MPs say on this show that this is not the Liberal Party of the past, that they just don't recognize it anymore because of its veer to the left. It's not the same party that it once was. Can he bring that back? Can he bring this back to a left-of-center party, or does he have to keep going in the direction he is and just eat the NDP? Well, don't forget, he never wanted that party, right? He blamed that party, the one of Chrétien and Martin, yeah. for the Liberals' current malaise. So it's hard to see him going in a direction that goes back to that place. I, you know, I don't see it. Um, could somebody else maybe do that? Yes. Are there people who want that Liberal Party back, more moderate, more centrist, center, center left, or just to the center? Yeah, for sure there are. Where do you see this going as we venture into a new year for the NDP? Do you see them sitting on the fence as if they as it, as they have for the past year, or do you see them changing an approach, changing direction? I think they're going to play for pharmacare. Obviously, they made so much noise about it, and they have a new deadline on that, as we know. I think they may try and get one or two more things out of it. But the practical reality, too, is they can't go to the polls now. They don't have the money, and they're not doing, you know, they're not yeah. moving either in, in them. So I think they'll find ways probably at least until uh, late next year to support the liberals, but make some subtle moves or not so subtle moves like Mr. Singh's pronouncement to try and show that they are a tad bit different. But right now, neither the liberals nor the NDP want to go to the polls because they would lose comprehensively. Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, NDP, and the Liberals. How long will that um, team last? We'll leave it at that. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Happy New Year. Take care, buddy. Talk soon. Bye. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Fascinating article in the Globe and Mail. The headline reads, Size of the Federal Public Service Swells to a Record High. According to report, the Federal Public Service reached a record size last year as the amount of jobs filled through non-advertised posts soared to nearly three times the level prior to the election of the Liberal government in 2015, increasing by about 40% in size in that time. Uh, what are they doing? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Happy New Year to you. Yes, Happy New Year. Thanks very much, Scott. So, Ian, the first question is, what are they doing? Do we have some big project we're working on? What is Why the need to increase the civil service by 40% in, uh, in this reign? Um, I lived here all my life, and I have family, full disclosure, in the public service. Uh, I'm not blaming any of the public servants, by the way, uh, I assure you. Um, but um, I've thought about this. I've certainly studied the public service. I've written two uh, very major articles on the downsizing, by one by the on the Crecia downsizing in 1995, and a second article on the 2009-10, well, 10-11 downsizing by Harper. And I certainly know lots of people there. And um, I find this a puzzle, and I'll explain why. So, no, there's no major project. I mean, yes, the country's getting bigger. The population's increasing. There's no question about that. But I want to point something out to most people don't know about the machinery of government because they don't study it. I'm not trying to condemn or criticize any of your listeners. I'm just saying most people don't sit around studying public service reports. So they've got their lives to live. But the point that I want to make is that most services that affect most Canadians with the exception of the transfer of the, the old age pension checks I'll talk about in a moment and the unemployment, most government services are delivered by the provinces and the municipalities. Okay, so the, the federal government is really a giant check uh, transfer machine, cashing machine or transferring machine. They transfer out enormous amounts of money. They bring in enormous amounts, over 400 billion, almost half a trillion. And then they transfer out enormous amounts to the provinces to as their share of uh, health care of social social support programs, higher education, and uh, and equalization to equalize the uh, poorer provinces against the richer provinces. Those transfers require almost nothing. I mean, almost no human beings. I mean, I'm not kidding you. It, it, you're moving, whether you're moving a dollar electronically or moving a billion dollars electronically, you may have two or three more checks and balances, but this is not a paper-based government anymore. I want to emphasize that. It's 100% digital. Everything is digital. So. What I'm saying is uh, there's there are some things that the federal government does. Obviously, it runs the military, it runs the border, okay. Um, and, but a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff, the services we take for granted are, are run provincially and municipally. At the in terms of trans, so-called transfers to individuals, and I'm talking old age pension checks, guaranteed annual income supplement, CPP. Uh, UI. Once you evaluate, investigate the applicant, okay, and there is a bureaucracy to do that. You know, you validate who you are. Here's my best birth certificate. You know, here's proof of my evidence. I'm a Canadian and here's my application. So put me on now for old age pension because I turned 65. Once you qualify those people, most of the transfers just go at the door every month. They're just automatic and they don't require over 500,000 people. And uh, so I mean, when I step back and I look at this, you know, the, the the federal public service has grown as a generalization, Scott, the public over the last hundred years, the federal public service grows significantly when the liberals are in power. It doesn't matter what liberal government. And when the conservatives get in, they they put a freeze on or they downsize. Typically, typically, Gretchen was a huge exception in 1995. And uh, so there is, and of course, the writings, if you look at the history of the writings, which I have around Ottawa. And there are 12, 13 ridings in the Ottawa region area. They have voted almost exclusively liberal for back to the beginning of Confederation. With the, the only riding right now that's conservative is Pierre Polyev's riding, which is out on the south end of the city. And it's it's a half rural riding. It's sort of feeding over into the rural side. Uh, but that's an anomaly. All the other ridings are liberal. And they have been forever. I'm not trying to quote a one-off statistic to you. I mean, you know, the, the, the Ottawa is... Is a federal public service town. And uh, so there's an affinity there. I'm not trying to say that there's deals or I'm just saying that they're, they're simpatico. You know, the unions. So yes, at the end of the day, the does, but they're simpatico. At the end of the 
At the end of the day, Ian, does this translate into votes for the prime minister? I'll ask the question. I mean, you got to vote for the boss. I that's where I was going to go, and thank you for <laughs> pushing me in that direction. Um, you know, I mean, politics enters into it. That's not a, a, a bad of me to say that. I mean, every politician wants to get reelected, whether you're a liberal or conservative. Uh, this government, as we know, is down very dramatically in the polls. And and I think this is part of their larger election strategy. We saw what they did in the Maritimes with the home heating tax, the, the carbon tax, because that's part of the base of the Liberal Party. Very important base. Well, Eastern Ontario, and I mean the city, not the rural ridings, which are conservative outside of Ottawa, but Eastern Ontario, city of Ottawa, the greater area around Ottawa, that's 13 seats. And they've got to, if they want to even get a minority government, they've got to hold Quebec, they've got to hold the Maritimes, and they've got to hold Ottawa. So I I think that this is part of that uh that strategy uh to to save the day to save the you know to save the government because very quickly for a run at a time I argue and there's others who argue this too that the government can actually run m- with far fewer people today because of digitization the argument that you need a huge increase in public service where everything is digital now is just nonsense I mean a digital digitized system is much more efficient at moving data around, moving information around. You have common files, common databases. You don't have file clerks going off to file cabinets and looking through pieces of paper. Everybody knows their own banking who is a listener. You know how much easier it is to pay your bills with a completely digitized system in your own household than it is in the old days if you had to go get a paper and get an envelope and get a stamp and write a check and put it in an envelope and carry it to the mailbox. Very labor intensive. (laughs) Digital government is much more efficient. I mean, in the sense it needs less people. There's a but yet this government has expanded enormously. 150 billion dollars of the 400 billion being spent is now serve uh, salaries to the federal public service. Think of that as overhead. That's the overhead of running the government. That's a third. NGOs are restricted. Nonprofits are restricted. If I'm not mistaken, to 10 percent or 12 percent, they can't spend more than that that on overhead. The rest has to go to the sharp end of the stick, which is the services to the client. In this instance, the overhead's becoming very substantial in percentage terms of the government Canada. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. The growth of the public service uh, under the current Prime Minister, up 40% in that term. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. We would like to talk now with uh, Housing Up, an initiative with Mission Services that assists unhoused in finding room and board. And it's been increasingly difficult, uh, as you can imagine, for all of these uh, organizations and teams to try to uh, fill the need. Let's bring in Ronaldo Da Silva, Program Director of Housing Up with Mission Services of Hamilton and here now. Ronaldo, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me here. Uh, Ronaldo, let's talk about the Housing Up program. What's your mission is here? What's the objective? Okay, so our program, we work with individuals that are experiencing homelessness. We work with single men, uh, and we support them throughout their housing search. And after they get housed, we continue working with them for a period of time to make sure that they are independent, that they are stable, and that they are they can keep their housing placement. So we want them to be as further away from homeless as possible. How great is demand? How has this been an unprecedented time? Oh, it, it's been, we started the program, we launched the program with the pandemic. So we, we, we launched it in April 2020. And so it's been almost four years of uh, operations. And we've been, we've been able to support over 400 uh, individuals to support housing which is uh, a really like a, a, a big achievement for us in, a, in a, such a hard time that we are facing right now. You know, uh, with interviewing and chatting with various organizations over the course of, uh, of the Tree of Hope campaign and prior to Christmas, it was amazing how much or how many stories I heard of, you know, how there's sort of a stereotype within society of who the unhoused are. But the message I was getting prior to Christmas was it's breaking all of these stereotypes. People who are, are using food banks who've never used them before. People are needing the uh, the help of, of services like Mission Services who have never needed them before. This is really affecting a broad range of people, isn't it? 
Yes, he, he has. And people had a, this stigma that in order to be homeless, people needed to have some mental health uh, issues or addictions. But no, uh, in, in fact, like any of us could face, could potentially face homeless at any point in our life. Mm. Uh, sometimes just an employment loss or a relationship breakdown uh, could 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 make us like uh, see ourselves becoming homeless. What's the biggest challenge for your organization, Ronaldo, moving forward into the new year? Um, we we all know that the rental market is really hot right now, right? So the prices are increasing, but the affordability is only one piece of the challenges. Right? We what we see is some of the individuals that we support, they don't have a good credit. They don't have a good housing history with previous landlords. So a reference for them when they are applying for another housing uh, might not be uh, might not be possible at that moment. Um, some of them don't have the basics. They don't have IDs. They don't have a bank account. But when they start working with our program, we help them throughout all those uh, little things. So we help them with the... IDs, we help them with the health cards, we take them to viewings, uh, we talk to landlords, we explain what our program is, and if they can get their first place, uh, usually share the accommodations uh, where they have their own room, and where they share the kitchen and the bathroom, but that is the opportunity that they were missing, so we Get this as a big opportunity. We continue working with these individuals. And when they are ready to take the next step, they can start applying for the other places that mm. were not an option for them before. So the big How... challenge that we have is, in fact, like starting working with them and make sure mm. that they will follow, follow through. How can Hamiltonians help you, help Mission Services? Well, they, they can help. Uh, we would love to have more landlords uh, on board with us uh, throughout the four years that we have been uh, running this program. We grew our network of landlords, uh, but we always are in need of them. People that are, that they have a place that they can rent to our clients that can work closely with our program and to make sure that these individuals have an opportunity. Ronaldo Silva with us, Program Director of Housing Up with Mission Services of Hamilton, trying to get the unhoused into some sort of more permanent situation. Ronaldo, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck. No problem. Thank you for having me again. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked at length about uh, foreign interference, whether you talk about the two Michaels situation, whether you talk about election interference uh, from the Chinese Communist Party in the last two federal elections. For more than a year, Canada has been mulling the creation of a foreign agent registry to fight interference in the country's democratic process. Uh, but it is getting some uh, support and uh, as well, well, the headline reads, foreign agent registry not a magic potion for interference experts say well maybe it's not a magic potion but is it still one spoke in the wheel that will help us are there those that don't want a foreign uh, interference uh, registry a foreign registry let's bring in duff conacher co-founder of democracy watch here now duff thanks for the time happy new year to you Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Duff, this just seems like a no-brainer. Other countries have it. Um, those that are, uh, uh, I guess, uh, stifling the idea of a foreign registry, are they benefiting from not having one? Why would you not want one? Uh, you would not want one if you don't want uh, your activities to have to be registered because you're doing things on behalf of foreign governments or foreign entities like big businesses in other countries. And uh, I th think it's plausible that the liberals have delayed putting this in place 
for so long because there's lots of ex-liberals likely involved in doing this kind of work and they wanted them to all sort of clean up and get their contracts done so that they wouldn't be showing up in the registry as foreign agents. I can understand. Otherwise, it has to be done the right way and it won't solve all the problems of foreign interference, but it's definitely one part of the solution. That was my next point was, you know, I don't think anybody thinks this is a silver bullet, but certainly one of them that you may load. Uh, Is it fair to say if you're questioning it's one thing, but but obviously um, against it, are you benefiting from it? I mean, is that, I mean, we can't assume guilt, but is would that really be the reason they don't want you nosing around? Um, yeah, I would think so if, if you're opposed for it. The, the reasons that have been raised are, are so implausible. Um, you do have to let people speak out who may have immigrated from other countries and now are speaking in favor of their home government, where they came from. That's allowed. They they have a charter right to say, I think what the Canadian government's doing is wrong in terms of how it affects things in the country I came from. But the registry has to say, the rule has to be, if you have any arrangement, paid or unpaid, with any foreign entity, business, or government, uh, and you're trying to influence Canadian politics, then you have to register. If it doesn't say that, it's going to be rather useless. And it has been proposed in the past by an MP, Kenny Chu, and a a conservative senator, Leo Housakas, and both of their bills to create a foreign registry would have done absolutely nothing. Because Mm -hmm. all they did was require people who lobby the government, who are paid to lobby, to register. And that's already required. With, with loopholes, and, and the loopholes would have been the same in the foreign agent registry. So nothing would have been disclosed. Anyone who was registered in the lobbyist registry lobbying for a foreign entity would just have to make the same entry in the foreign agent registry. Well, it's already in the lobbyist registry. So their proposals were useless. And if the federal government comes forward with a similar proposal, it will be useless. It won't expose anything more than has already been exposed by the lobbyist you- registry. Are you concerned, Duff, that others uh, from uh, whatever side will say, um, yeah, yeah, let's do that. We're doing it, but do such a shoddy version of it that it is not worth the paper it's on? Yeah, very much so. Concerned about uh, shoddy uh, uh, measures in all the areas. There's, there's currently seven ways to legally and secretly interfere in Canadian politics. And all federal parties are ignoring them. There have been two reports come, that have come out from two different House committees. House committees have MPs from all parties on them. And both of those reports have ignored these seven legal ways of interfering in our politics uh, as a foreign government or foreign entity. And so if MPs, if, if the Foreign Interference Inquiry Commissioner ignores these seven legal ways of interfering and... I expect there'll be another committee report looking at these things as well, reviewing the Election Act and other areas. And if they continue to ignore these seven ways, then seven legal secret ways of foreign interference will continue to be legal. You talked about how they have to be stopped. You talked about how uh, allegations of, of foreign interference in the last two elections could have possibly or benefited the liberals, but yet all parties have been involved in this or are drawn into this web in some way. So why would all parties not want to clear the air? Well, uh, first of all, to give one of the ways, um, third parties, interest groups, individuals can secretly support the nomination candidates for all the parties and also party leadership candidates. And the parties like controlling nomination races because they like to rig them and stop people from running for them that they don't want running. And every leader wants to have people who are loyal to them. And so they like to control the nomination races because if they can hand someone a nomination and so they become the election candidate, then that person owes the leader and the leader likes people to owe them. They don't want independent MPs. Um, and in the party leadership races, you know, those are a big dogfight between factions in the parties, and they all would love to be have secret support um, help them win. So uh, the loopholes in the lobbying law, I've testified now, I think, seven times before committees about loopholes that allow for secret unethical lobbying, including by foreign sponsored lobby groups. And 
Every party has supported those loopholes. So mm. they clearly all want to be able to do secret deals with their favorite lobbyists, even if they're foreigners. Uh, one so what critic can I say? Of- like 30 years, we've been trying to get these loopholes closed. These are not new loopholes. Yeah. Uh, we've been pointing them out, but they allow not just undemocratic, unethical domestic lobby groups to influence our politicians. They also allow foreign sponsored lobby groups. And hopefully that's going to finally get them to clean it up. But none of them, no party federally has shown an interest in cleaning this stuff up in the last 30 years. Uh, we've only got about a minute left here, Duff. Um, one critic of the foreign uh, reg- foreign agent registry said this will uh, bring, quote, baggy bureaucratic monster to the system. Um, how do others do it without that? Uh, it would be very easy to... Um, just extend the lobbying registry and create a subset of the lobbying registry. It's already up there. There's already uh, staff at the commissioner of lobbying's office that are running these databases and, and you're required to register. So it doesn't take much. It's an online registry. It's, it doesn't cost that much. I don't know why uh, Wesley work raised that as a, as a criticism. Um, You know, people are not going to register despite the penalty if they think they can get away with it without getting caught. So the enforcement is an important part of this. And we need a stronger enforcement than the commissioner of lobbying. But the infrastructure is already there in that office to just extend it and and have it's a it's a registry of influence, which is like a registry of lobbying. Just extend that office and, and it wouldn't cost that much at all to set up this registry. But again, many other changes are needed to stop undemocratic, unethical influence over our politics in every way by Canadians and by foreigners. So all these loopholes have to be closed or it will be legal in secret to continue to interfere in our politics as a foreigner. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Why is there so much debate around a foreign agent registry? Why does it take so long? Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. We'll keep you updated as things develop with the Commission of Inquiry and the agent registry. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. Yes, that's. I uh, hope you had a good one. Yeah, it was always fun. It's always uh, great to make it through and into another year. You feel more optimistic this year. A new year, a new calendar, all that stuff. Funny you ask that. That's exactly what we're going to be talking about right off the bat uh, in my show because, you know, I I want to. I want to. I don't know if I do, but I want to. And, 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 you know, it's almost like, can we, can you make your brain decide that you're optimistic, Scott, or do you think that you just are or are not? Well, I think you can try, but then, you know, if you're constantly struggling, it can, it, it can wear on you. Yeah. I see. I mean, I, it's a great thing that I always wonder about. Are, are there people who are just naturally optimistic? Cause they seem to be. I like, think so. Yeah. There are people that seem like nothing bothers them and everything's cool and it doesn't matter what's going on. They, it's just, it doesn't affect them and other people like everything bothers and nothing mm. is good. And I just, mm. I don't know how much of that. And I try, I, I, but I don't know how much of that is a decision. I think there is a decision factor to it, but I, I don't know if there, are, if, I don't know if someone who is in the latter category can make themselves into the former. No, I, I think you got a point there that, you know, if things are bad, things are bad, whether they're good or bad, but obviously there's more chance and reason for optimism when, you know, you've got a little bit of spring in your step. Uh, you know, we saw that coming out of the global pandemic. People were a little down and, um, you know, couldn't wait to get back out and bang pots and pans and stuff. Yeah. I, um, you, you know what I'm not optimistic about this year? <laughs> I'll tell you, well, it's just one thing and it doesn't. No, you re- said you wanted to be and now I you've know. made the decision that you're not. No, it's, I, I am trying to be the one thing though, that I am just. I'm, I'm trying s- to be too. I am sitting here just, well, it's going to happen, but I just, I'm, I'm so not excited about it. It's, this is a presidential election year. And I just, I, the, the overwhelming dump of everyday slime and mud and whatever is (laughs) like, even if you are trying your best and we can't really avoid it, like we can try to avoid it, but you're not going to, and it's just going to be, it's going to overwhelm everything else until November. It's just, and it's, it's non, it's going to be nonstop. And can you imagine it's very likely 
that we're going to have Biden Trump again, which I mean, throw Hillary Clinton in and you have the only three people I think who are the <laughs> least liked or qualified people in the country to run. And they're the ones who are going for it. I often wonder if you know, I'm sitting as a, a guest on one of the late night talk shows for some stupid, strange reason. And, you know, they ask me about politics and my reaction would be with Trump or Biden. Is this the best you can do with all of the bright minds, uh, men and women in the United States of America? This is the best you can do. But then you could hold up a poster of everybody uh, leading parties in this country and say the same thing. Not is to the same the degree. Best we can do not. Okay. To the same degree, and and I, 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 it's a close, but it's a great question, though, Scott, because there are what is it now, three hundred and seventy million people, and adding like hundreds of thousands every month at the southern border, but um, like three hundred and seventy-five million Americans, and when it comes right down to it, Trump and Biden are the two bright lights, the two leading leaders of your nation. Like if you, honestly, if you were to whittle out people, I would think if this was, if this was an American idol competition, they'd be the first two voted out. (laughs) How are they the last one standing? Maybe that's how we should act. Uh, have a survivor elections. Have yeah, a survivor, survivor game. Throw them all on an island, and there's eight on each side from uh, the Republicans and Democrats, and let's see who the last one standing is. Let's see what how they fight for the soap. All right, um, uh, we didn't even talk about the professional women's hockey league or the fact that Team Canada got blown out today. Are you surprised by the latter? Uh, no, they have not looked all that impressive, this particular team Canada. So even if they had won today and they deserve to win today, they were the better team today. Just, you know, one of those weird, bad bounces at the end, but they were not going to win this tournament regardless. They just, that they were not the best. And as for the women's thing, the women's league, I really hope that this works. And the thing that I think is the distinction to make here and that is going to decide this, it's great to love the idea of a women's hockey league. But we have to love the women's hockey league. There's a difference between liking the thought that there is one and wanting to watch it because it's great. And I hope it's the latter because if it's not, it won't last. If it is, I think it will. Yeah, it'd be interesting. They got certainly uh, strong attendance at this point. If you are uh, one of these women that have played hockey through the system for your life, and this is the goal that you finally work toward for, you know, a, a professional women's hockey league, is this as big as playing for your team in the Olympics? Because this is what all of that was for. Mm, that's a good question. Um I don't know if it is yet. Maybe it is. You'd have to ask them. I mean, they're the ones who would say this. I mean, always, every time I've talked to Sarah Nurse or Renata Fast or Laura Fortino or any Mm -hmm. of the other, uh, Emma Malte, any of the other local women who have played, the Olympics has always been the top of the mountain, but there hasn't been a professional league before. So, you know, we'll, look, I just, as I say, you're right. Great attendance yesterday, lots of interest. I'm sure the TV numbers were probably pretty good. Let's see what happens in three or four weeks. I'm hoping that people are actually watching, not just saying, Hey, great, great. There's a woman's league. Have you watched it? No, I'm hoping that's not the case. (laughs) I think it was a little rougher than we all expected, especially the first game. And isn't that a good thing? Like that. So that's very exciting. We don't, I don't think people want a game where there is no contact, men or women. I'm not saying you have to have 300 pound women out there punching each other's faces in, but I also don't think you want figure skating. I think people want hockey and that is part of hockey. And I, I wouldn't be shocked if down the road, they either allow a lot more contact than we expect, or they might even, who knows, maybe even at some point they bring in body contact. I don't know. All right, Scott Radley, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. You can listen after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a good show. Thanks, Scott. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.